Sometimes you find people that are, hard, that are really hard to love. And sometimes you find people that are really easy to love. Pastor Bill is one of those. So if you don't know him, you got to know him. An amazing testimony of the power and the love of God through him. Thank you, brother. Good morning, familia. My name, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Hannibal. Um, I want to welcome you all to Wheaton Bible Church. And as you just saw, we are returning today to the Gospel of Matthew after almost like two months uh, of uh, having taken a break. Last year, we started our journey into the Gospel of Matthew. We hope to finish the Gospel of Matthew by the end of this year. Um, and the text we look today, uh, or we're looking at today, comes after this amazing, powerful miracle Jesus performs. Um, I, I don't know how many of you guys remember, but like two months, three years ago when we were talking about this, uh, Jesus uh, is given uh, a Lunchable. <laughs> he grabs five loaves of bread and two fish, two fishes, and he turns that into this abundant meal that feeds 5,000 people. I mean, that's a crazy miracle, amen? A Lunchable into something that fits 5,000 people. Now, just to make this even a greater story, we know that at the end of this, there was 12 baskets full of leftovers from that meal. And if you know anything about baskets in the New Testament, there are like human-sized baskets of little pieces of bread and fish, and who knows, maybe carnitas and tacos. Who knows what they put in there? But it was, it was just in there, 12 baskets. So just think with me for a second. If God can use a Lunchable, turn a Lunchable into a feast for 5,000 people, can you imagine if Jesus would have gone back and grabbed the 12 baskets, how many people can he feed with those Lunchables? It's a, it's a crazy miracle. Powerful, beautiful miracle. How about if I tell you that as amazing as that was, the disciples didn't get it. Actually, we know that they, they didn't get it because this story is found in all four Gospels, and every single one of the Gospels gives us, gives us a little bit of the picture of what's happening here. But the Gospel of Mark says that the disciples did not understand this miracle because their hearts were hard. That's Mark chapter 6, verse 52. And you would think, What? A lunchable into 5,000 meals? And there's a reason why then this event happens after that miracle. Because there was something about the disciples that they needed to learn that they did not learn before. And I want to make the argument that this is the same reason why we need to understand this passage today. Because maybe, just maybe, we are like the disciples. We believe that God is a God of miracles, but maybe not as much as we think we do. For that then, we're going to talk about three things. We're going to talk about the Lord in the storm, the Lord for the storm, and the Lord of the storm. In, for, and of. So let's go with the first point, let's, the Lord in the storm. So Jesus performed this beautiful miracle, right? And the Gospel of John says that when people, people were so impressed by these miracles that they wanted to take Jesus by force and they wanted to make him king. Now, I'm not going to explain that right now. I will come back to that later on. 
But Jesus does not like that because he is not a king like people want him to be a king. So in the middle of all of these verses 22 and 23, it says that he made the disciples get into the boat. I'm assuming that this was aggressive. So he gets the disciples into the boat. He sends them out and then he starts to dismiss the crowd. And after Jesus goes up to the mountain to pray. Now I'm going to come back to that later on. So hold your thoughts on that one. But after he goes, he comes down as he's praying, uh, verse 24 says this, and the boat was already at a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Now, we find this group of disciples that many of them, if not all of them, are fishermen, or most of them, I would say. And as fishermen, they have been in the storms before. So they know how to deal with a storm. They know how to deal with the complications of being on water, in a lake or an ocean or something of that sort, even though this is a lake. And because of the other Gospels, we know that they are now like three miles away from the shore. And because of what you're going to see in a second in one of the other Gospels, he says that they have been navigating for about 10 hours through this storm. So they are... I'm sorry, they're three miles, and now they've been navigating for 10 hours. Now, the text says that they're being buffeted. Now, that word can be translated as storm, and that's how we know that there's a storm, or torture. And I think that part of the reason why Matthew uses this word intentionally is because he wants us to see the magnitude of the storm. It wasn't just a, like a little rainy day. It was a massive storm. And for about 10 hours, these people have been navigating through this storm. Now, by now, we know that it's somewhere between 3 to 6 o'clock in the morning. And I know that because in verse 25 says, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them. But look at what he says, walking on water, not swimming, not floating, walking on water. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified, and they said, it is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. Now, before I dig into the text, I, I, I got to ask you a question. What happened to the storm when Jesus started walking on water? How many of you guys think that the storm, as soon as Jesus steps on water, stops? Raise your hand. How many of you guys don't care? <laughs> Thanks for your participation, people. For some reason, when I'm reading this text, I don't know where I got this from. You see, when I'm reading the Bible, I usually do this. When I'm reading the Bible, and I invite you to do this. I, I, I imagine things. I try to put myself in a story. Right? Like, for example, I, I imagine Jesus, you know, walking around with his sandals and things like that. You know, somebody told me that I shouldn't wear jeans, uh, gym shoes to preach. And the first ima image that came to mind was Jesus preached with sandals. Right? It's, that's my imagination. Right? So for some reason, I assume that as soon as Jesus starts to walk on water, the storm stops. What is interesting, though, is that the text doesn't say that. 
The text says that everything that we are about to hear, everything that we're going to see, that the, 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 how the disciples respond, the, the conversation or the interaction between Jesus and Peter, all of that stuff is happening in the storm. How do I know that? Verse uh, 32 says that when they, that means Peter and Jesus, climbed into the boat in the middle of this violent storm, wind died down. So the one phrase that I'm going to repeat like 20,000 times during this sermon is in the storm. Actually, let's practice. In the storm. Much better. Now, the reason why I want you to see that is because here you have a group of men that are used to this. They have been in places like this before. And yet they see Jesus walking on water. And verse 26 says that they were terrified. They experienced fear. They were full. They got a full panic attack in the middle of all these things. And it seems like if for a fragment of time, these men that are terrified in the middle of the storm that are used to this. And the text says that this is a violent storm. When they see Jesus walking on water for a fragment of time, they are more afraid of Jesus than the storm. Don't you find that interesting? They were terrified about Jesus, petrified about Jesus, and somehow that storm, not so important anymore, after 10 hours of dealing with this. Now, from a human, human perspective, that makes sense, you know? If you are scared, if you see the wind and the sounds and all that stuff and you struggle, and then you see walking on water, that's scary, people. That's why these people are looking at Jesus and say, that's a ghost. You know what makes this text even more interesting? This is not the first time these guys have been in a storm with Jesus. If you have been walking with us in this journey, you probably remember Matthew chapter 8, in which Jesus is also in the disciples, inside a boat, Jesus taking a nap, and these guys screaming like crazy, Lord, save us. We are going to drown. Which is interesting because Jesus gets up. And then he just looks at them. I, I mean, I could just imagine me being sitting there f scared like crazy, calling Jesus to save me. And he gets up and looks at me in the middle of the storm and says, Oh, Hannibal, you man of little faith. Why are you so afraid? And I'm like, What do you mean? Look at this. And then the text says that Jesus speaks to the storm. He doesn't go, stop in the name of God. No, no, no. He looks at the storm and says, shh, come down, baby. <laughs> that's my translation. But, you know, in the Greek, that's kind of, that's kind of the thing. <laughs> it actually says that he spoke to the waters. And the waters cooled down. Listen up. You would think. You would think that after being there with Jesus, seeing him do this, they would understand that the Jesus they're hanging around with had power over nature. You would think. I would think that I would believe that. Actually, you would think 
that when Jesus is performing this miracle with the, with, the, with the fish and the bread and all that stuff, you would think that they would be like, of course Jesus is going to turn a lunchable into a meal for 5,000 people. Jesus has power over nature. And yet, there's something that they still don't get. Now, I want you to hold that thought there for a second, and I want us to concentrate on Peter. Because if you remember, Peter is also one of the disciples, and he's also in the boat, and he's also been, he's also three miles away from the shore, and he is also navigating for 10 hours. But in the middle of this storm, when they see Jesus walking on water and they're terrified, Peter says this in verse 28. Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. And I'm reading this and I'm thinking about this violent storm and I'm thinking, what? Why would Peter... Ask Jesus to do that in the storm. Now, this is interesting. When he calls Jesus, he calls him Lord. So even as he's going through this and he's terrified, he recognizes that Jesus is God, that he's the master of everything. And this is basically what Peter is saying to Jesus. If you are Jesus, if you are God, if you are Lord, if you're the master of everything... Prove it. I want to walk on water. What? Who does that? See, this is why I think that is not fair. When we use Peter as a poor example of faith. I actually think that we ought to learn something about Peter's faith. Because it reflects what Christian faith looks like. Notice that he doesn't say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, can I swim to you? He doesn't say to Jesus, Jesus, throw the floaties. I'll float to you. He says the most crazy thing. If you are Jesus, I want to walk on water. You walking on water? I want to walk on water if you are really God. Now, crazy as it is. More crazy is what Jesus says. Verse 29. Come. Yeah, brother, come. You know, I'm trying to think, if that was me, man, and I want to I wanna be a person of faith, and I see in the middle, in the storm, I see Jesus walking on water, and I'm thinking, that's got to be Jesus. But if it's Jesus, how about if I walk to you? So Jesus, can I walk to you? And that Jesus responds and says, yeah, bro, come. I'll be like, I was just bluffing. <laughs> I was just kidding. You know, there's a lot of wind here. I'm scared. You know, forget what I just said. I, I don't think that I have that faith. And yet Peter, in the second part of verse 29, says that Peter got down out of the boat and walked on water and came toward Jesus. You know the illusionist David Blaine? Peter has nothing on that guy. He walked on water by faith. So I don't want you to miss this. As imperfect 
as Peter was. His faith was real. He walked on water. In the middle of the storm, he steps out of the boat. In the middle of the storm. Because the Christian faith is not about playing it safe. Because the Christian faith is about almost imitating what Peter is doing here. See, if there's one thing that the Western world needs to learn from the global church, is that faith many times requires risk. That the Christian faith requires sacrifice. If there's one thing that I think the Western world needs to repent of, is that we have turned our faith into something that does not require any risks. If there's something that we must learn and repent of, is that the Western world is addicted to safety and comfort. And that is not faith. Sometimes faith requires that you step out of the boat in the middle of the storm. Can you see why is it that we have something to learn from Peter's faith? Now, there's something unique about Peter here. Because up until this point, he is showing what it means to live by faith. He looks at Jesus. He trusts Jesus. You know, he does this crazy thing. And, when, and as he's walking out on water, walking on water, verse 30 says that he started to see the wind and became afraid and began to sink, crying out, Lord, save me. The same men that told Jesus, if you are Jesus, I want to walk on water. Lord, call me. And minutes later, the same person is calling to the same Jesus saying, Lord, save me. Now, Jesus is not the type of God that he says, oh, really? You lack faith? I'm going to let you sink for a while. No, no, that's not what happens. Look at what happens in verse 31. Immediately, Jesus reached out to his hand and caught him. But then he said, you of little faith, why did you doubt? I want you to stay there for a second. Did you notice that he did not say, you lack faith, that's why you're sinking? Actually, he doesn't say, you don't have faith. That's what you're thinking. He says, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? This is the thing. I think that this is a description of what it means to be a Christian. I actually think that this is a description of what it means to be a believer. 
We are all people of little faith. We all, at one moment, we can say, I truly believe. And the second moment, he's like, wait, 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 I'm sinking. We are all people that as much as we want to serve the Lord and love the Lord and submit to him, there are times in which we just don't have the right amount of faith. And this is the thing that you cannot miss. The reason why Jesus walks on water, the reason why Jesus is not getting rid of the storm, even though he could because he did it in Matthew chapter 8. The reason why he's allowing the disciples to be three miles away, ten hours of, of, of navigating this thing. The reason why he allows Peter to get in the water as to start sinking is because he needs to shape Peter into a man of faith. This is the principle. There are things that we only learn by suffering. Many times. The only way we grow into faith is by walking in the midst of the storm. It is only in the storm where you get to see your doubts. It is only when the Lord allows or brings these awful things in our lives that we get to grow in our faith. You see, modern world would say that that's terrible. People would say that that's not what Christianity is supposed to be. And I'm here to argue that that is a principle all throughout the Bible. And that as much as we think that we can learn by having more information, there are things that we only learn when we are with our Lord in the storm. That the disciples in Matthew chapter 8 asked the question, who is this man who commands to the waters to cease and they do? But because the Lord was not done with them, you get to this story in the storm and look at what happens in verse 32. And when they climbed, Jesus and Peter, into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped Jesus, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. The disciples in this storm are very different to the disciples we saw in Matthew chapter 8. The Peter we see in this chapter... Very different to the Peter we see in Matthew chapter 8. I wish we would learn differently. But that is not true. God will allow suffering to shape, shape you into the person that he wants you to be. We don't enjoy it. We don't even have to celebrate it, but we have to go through it. The question is, how do, deal, how do we deal with it? Because it's still hard. How do we cope with this? Because it's still painful. How do we survive? 
Well, this leads to point number two. Not only we need our Lord in the storm, but we need the Lord for the storm. And I want to I, I show you how is it that Jesus was helping Peter in specific and the rest of the disciples, but Peter in specific, and how he, he would grow his faith in the middle of the storm. Because what I want you to see here for a second is that Jesus is not telling Peter, you know, Peter, if you don't want to sink again, you got to have stronger faith. He doesn't say that. Actually, when he says you of little faith, he is not saying, please don't hear this and don't read it into the text. He is not saying, you know what, Peter, how about if you work out your faith a little bit? You know what you're sinking, Peter? Because you don't have enough faith. That's not what he's doing. Actually, question. Can you grow in your faith by mere willpower? Can you imagine this guy walking on water and he's sinking and he's like, I have faith, I have faith, I, I have faith. Can you see that? Do you have control over the stuff that you believe that way? Can you accomplish those things by mere willpower? We don't even have control of our emotions, over our emotions. You know, the, the dumbest advice someone could give you when you are afraid is, don't be afraid. You know why? Because we don't have control over our fears. They're just there. I'm going through this thing. I'm afraid, and I'm like, I'm not going to be afraid. I'm not going to be afraid. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be afraid. Because that's not how we change. That is not what Jesus is telling Peter. I want to show you. That as Jesus is dealing with Peter, he is not magnifying Peter's faith. He does not call him to magnify his faith. What Jesus does is in the storm, he magnifies himself. Because what we need the most in the middle of struggle... What we need the most when we suffer, when, what we need the most when we are in pain, is not us trying harder to be better Christians. It's for us to have a beautiful, humongous, powerful, perfect picture of Jesus. You know where I get that from? I get this from, from something that Jesus said before Peter walked on water. Before. Before I show you that, though, I want to I wanna show you how in our humanity, even as Christians, we do the same thing that Peter does in the middle of the storm. So in verse 30, he says that when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid, and he began to sink, and that's when he cried out to the Lord, Lord, save me. What is interesting, though, is that the word save in the text, I mean saw in the text, is not just having this ability to see physically. The word saw in the text, in the original, actually means to see in order for you to consider and to think. 
So this is what Peter is doing. He stepped out of the faith. He's walking in faith. He's walking in faith. He's looking at Jesus. He's looking at Jesus. And for a fragment of time, he started to look around. And what he's seeing is influencing his thoughts. And now he's starting to ask questions. How about if I sink? How far can I go? What if this happens? What if this? What if that? What if this? What if that? And that, and because he's doing that, doubt started to creep in. And now he's not only questioning if he can continue to walk, but we know that he's questioning Jesus. Because that's why Jesus said, Why are you doubting? So I'm speculating here, but I'm assuming that as he's walking in the water, he's thinking, Wait, is it really Jesus? How about if he's a ghost? And now I'm walking on water. I'm going to sink. How about if he's not the son of God? How about if everything he says is not true? How about if I, it was just a dream that he multiplied the, the lunchables? And the more his mind is going 100 miles an hour, the more he starts to think, uh, to sink. Why? Because now his focus is not Jesus. It's everything else. And that's why Jesus says, even before all of this happens, in verse 27, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Now you think, well, that's not a lot. Well, it is. When you know that when Jesus is saying, it is I, he's using the name that God the Father used to introduce himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Jesus in the original is actually saying, take courage, I am, don't be afraid. Now, in order for you to, to grasp the whole thing, you have to remember what happened in Exodus chapter 3. So if you're not familiar with the story, I'll give it to you super quick. God's people, the Israelites, have been in Egypt for 400 years, living in slavery for 400 years. And now God wants to deliver them. And God is choosing another man of little faith, imperfect faith, immature faith, to use him to deliver his people. And he sees this push. And the text says that the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire. Now, pay attention to the word, the angel, the phrase, the angel of the Lord. All scholars agree that most likely that was Jesus in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord. And then Jesus in the Old Testament tells them, this is what you need to do. And he says, well, you're going to deliver all these people, and you're going to get my people free, and stuff like that, right? And then Moses, which is a man of little faith, is starting to doubt as well. And then God says to him, don't worry, I will be with you. And you will actually bring these people out, and you will worship in this mountain. So God is saying, my presence is going to be with you, and I guarantee that you come back to worship. But because Moses is a man of little faith, he says, if someone asks me who you are, what am I about to say? Who sent me? And he says, God says, I am who I am. I am, I'm sending you. I am, are you God, the Lord, the God of the fa your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of, the God of Jacob? I am. 
So he's saying what is going to guarantee your success is not that you have faith. It's not even that you are a man of little faith. What guarantees your success is that I am. Now, the word I am, the name I am in the Old Testament, we know at least three things about that name. One is a covenant name. Meaning that God says that whatever he promised, he will do. That he will not walk away from his people. Covenant. Number two, we know that I am in the Old Testament means that God is self-sufficient. He doesn't need anybody. He doesn't need your help. He doesn't need my help. He is self-sufficient. I am. And number three, the name I am means that we don't get to define who God is. He defines who he is. I am. Now let's go back to Matthew chapter 14. Because these guys are in the storm. And they're terrified. And they see everything that is happening. And they are struggling. And in the midst of all of this, Jesus doesn't say, you know what, you should have better faith, you know. Try harder. Go to the church more. Pray more. Fast more, serve more, memorize most verses. Is that what he says? In the midst of this storm, he magnifies himself by saying, I am the angel of the Lord that appeared to Moses. I am the God of covenants that never walk away. I am the self-sufficient God. I am the great God. I am the one that defines everything. I am the real God. In the midst of your storm, in the midst of your struggle, in the midst of your pain, I am. Don't be afraid. You see it? The don't be afraid is not a command for them to exercise. Don't be afraid is the result of knowing who Jesus is in the storm. And that will be the only way you and I get to grow in the middle of the storm. One thing is for sure, church. You are, or you will be, in a storm at one point. Actually, as a pastor, I've learned that being in a storm is part of what it means to be alive. There is no way around that. So whoever is telling you the idea that you're not supposed to suffer, I don't know what Bible they're reading. And whoever tells you that life's supposed to be uh, right in a park, I don't know what Bible they're reading. Because that is not the reality of what it means to be a broken person living in a broken world. Suffering is part of the equation. But what makes Christianity unique is that God allows that to shape us into the people that he wants us to be. And he shapes us into the people that he wants us to be. Not by calling us to try harder, but to see us more beautiful, more powerful, more sufficient, more everything in the middle of the storm. See, in the last five to seven years, five to ten years, there has been a whole group of people that have walked away from faith and they're deconstructing their faith. 
one of the number one complaints, and why is it that they walked away from faith, is because they would say that they don't understand why a good God would allow suffering. And this text tells you, and the rest of the Bible tells you, that suffering in the hands of a good God is always for his glory and your good. Even if it hurts. I know a lady that she's about 70 now. And she grew up in a Christian home. And she saw terrible things in her, in her Christian home. And she walked away somewhere like around age 15. Uh, she walked away from the Lord. And, and from age 15 all the way to age 40, her life was full of complicated and painful things. And somewhere around, around age 40, she has, she has this encounter in the middle of a storm with this great I am, Jesus Christ. And she's been walking with the Lord now for another 30 years. And I've never seen a lady like this. Because the, the Jesus that she got to taste in the middle of the storm was so beautiful, so perfect, so powerful, so, so sufficient that I guarantee you, because I know this lady, I guarantee you that if she will be in the storm with the disciples and with Peter, and Jesus says, come, that lady would outrun Peter. Because for her to live is Christ and to die is gain. You only get to be like that when you find to see, when you learn to see Jesus as the great I am. How do we do that? Well, we need the Lord in the storm. We need the Lord for the storm. And we need the Lord of the storm. Sociologists use a term that explains how is it that we are transformed into the people that we're supposed to be or that we are. They use the term plausibility structure. And this is the gist of it, that basically everything that we are today and the stuff that we believe is because there has been a lot of things in our lives and practices in our lives that has shaped us into the people that we are today. Meaning that every single one of us believe the things that we believe and embrace the things that we embrace and have the worldview that we have because we have been shaped throughout the years by the different things we have heard and we have practiced. Remember how I told you that I was going to come back and the conversation about Jesus wanting, people wanted Jesus to become a king and him going to pray? Scholars have different ideas on why is it that Jesus uh, went to pray for so long. Some people, some scholars say that part of the reason why Jesus went to pray for so long is because when, Jesus, when people wanted him to become a king, he did not want to be tempted by that or he wanted to fight the temptation. And therefore, the practice of spending time with God for five hours at least was required for him to be the person that God wanted him to be. That would be one perspective. The other perspective is that part of the reason why Jesus went to pray for, pray for five hours is because he was about to go to the cross. So he wants to finish the race well. 
He wants to honor the Father. Therefore, let me prepare myself by praying at least five hours before I go to the cross. This is what is interesting. That regardless of what the reason is why Jesus prayed for five hours, this we know. He was being shaped into the Savior, Savior we needed. And this is part of the reason why we pray. So Jesus gets magnified. This is part of the reason why we read the Bible. So Jesus gets magnified. This is the reason why we do church. So Jesus gets magnified. This is the reason why we do all the things that we do for Jesus to get magnified. And yet there's one more practice that you can afford not to practice. And it's learning to preach the gospel to yourself. The practice that you cannot forget to practice and that all the other practices point you to is that you remember who Jesus is and why he went to the cross. And I want to tell you why really quick. If Jesus is the great I am, means that Jesus is the God of covenants. Amen? Meaning that if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you surrender your life to Jesus, to Jesus Christ, he commits to you and he never walks away. Even though you, you are in the storm. Now, I want to put in front of you an image that you can never forget. Peter is walking on water. And he starts to sink. And he started to sink because he looked away. Do you know why Jesus was rescued that day? Because the God of covenants, the great I am, Jesus Christ, never looked away. Our success, our growth, our dependence on him is not based on the things we do. It's based on the reality that the great I am, our covenant God, never looks away. And even if you don't hold on to him, he will still hold on to you. Did you notice who went to look for the disciples in the middle of the storm? Jesus. Those are the things that you got to practice time and time again. Preach to yourself time and time again. And how about if I tell you that one of the practices that we have as Christians in order for us to continue to magnify Jesus is communion. So we could see and taste our God of covenants that in order for him to save us, he was willing to die. Now, if you are a Christian, this celebration is for you. If you're not a Christian just yet, I'm going to ask you to please consider surrendering your life to Jesus and then participate. Now, because communion is a practice, we're going to do something that is one of the practices that church has done throughout church history. That is one of, the things, one of the things that we should do in communion, at least every now and then, is to preach to ourselves and remember the things that we believe. It's a practice that must happen.
So what we're going to do today before participating in communion, we're going to read the Apostles' Creed together. And you got to do it loud and clear. Amen? Ready? We believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Is that on the screen? Or I'm going to need you to read with me. Let's do it again. We believe in God the Father. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit. Bible calls us to examine our hearts before participating in communion. So I want you to think about the things that you just professed and see if you are still living in light of that. And if there's anything that you need to repent of, repent of this is the time to do it. So take a few seconds of that. I'm going to ask you to take your cup, remove the side of the cup where you find the bread, and listen to what the scripture says. And the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You may proceed. Now you can remove the other side of the cup. And the scripture says that in the same way after supper, Jesus took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. You may participate. Lord, we understand That there is no way to go around the storm. The struggles are real as long as, as we continue to live in this creation. And that as painful as those things are, Lord. We trust, Lord, that you use the storm to shape us into the people that you want us to be. And that you do that, Lord, by magnifying yourself in the storm for the storm. Lord, we don't want to be people that just believe with our heads. But we want to be people that believe with our hearts. 
And the only way to do that, Lord, is to see you as much better than anything else. More powerful than anything else. More sufficient than anything else. More secure than anything else. More reliable than anything else. More fulfilling than anything else. More personal than anything else. More gracious than anything else. More merciful than anything else. The only way, Lord, to survive and to thrive and to grow in the middle of the storm is to see you as the great I am, the covenant God. That can speak to the storm and the storm will submit. But that even if you don't, we are still secure because you get a hold of us. Because you are a God of covenants. Lord, I don't, I don't know how many of us here already see you that way. But I pray, Lord, that by the power of the Spirit, you help us see you that way. That you are so committed to your church. That you were willing to go to the cross. To take the ultimate storm and to not be rescued. There was no hand for you. Only my condemnation. Will you help us believe more and more? And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And we all say.